0: Hello everyone and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on lifesightnews.com. We are again approaching Christmas and I wanted to take the opportunity to talk about one of my heroes who actually passed away on December 23 last year at the age of 93. Many of you who have been following Canadian politics or the history of conservative media or indeed the backlash in Canada to the sexual revolution will recognize his name. It was Ted Byfield. He was known as a pioneer of Canadian conservative media, and for more than a half century, he was one of Canada's most significant public Christians. His life's work included the founding of a religious order, the formation of several Christian boarding schools for boys, a series of influential news magazines, laying the groundwork for a political movement, writing books, and serving as editor on a magnificent 12-volume history of Christianity, The Christians, Their First 2,000 Years, which I've recommended many times both on this podcast and in print. This year, the culmination of year's worth of work finally managed to publish my biography of Ted Byfield, Prairie Lion, The Life and Times of Ted Byfield, which was published by the organization of the publishing house that published Ted's other books. And today I'm going to be talking to his son, Vince Byfield, a bit about his life, and I want to set the stage for that conversation by just kind of giving you an overview of who Ted Byfield was, because I really do believe that it's important for Christians to understand the history of their own movements and in, in their own country. So often those who write the history books are those who were champions of the sexual revolution, and we forget that those who were on our side pushing back, only received the role of villains in the official history books. Now, I last saw Ted Byfield on the weekend of his 93rd birthday last July, when we spent several days together sitting in his office and outside on the deck of his Edmonton home, and we were reading aloud the chapters of his biography that I'd been working on for years. And it was an unbelievably special time getting to read through all of these different experiences he's, he's had, and I would look up every once in a while and there would be tears streaming down his face, especially when I was reading about his wife, his beloved Ginger. And it's really staggering to consider what the scope of his life covered, even in regards to Canadian history. Because Ted Byfield, when he passed away, had lived through all but 61 of Canada's then 154 years. He was born in 1928 and his first memories were of riding the streetcars in Toronto, where as a small boy, he once spotted the great Canadian railway builder Sir Donald Mann, which he told me about with as much excitement, I think, in his 80s as he had when he first saw the man. His childhood was defined by his father Vernon's sporadic employment during the Great Depression, since he was a good enough journalist to get a job at pretty much any paper, including the Washington papers, but a prodigious, a prodigious pardon me, enough drinker to promptly lose it. Ted, his parents, and later his brother John often had to rely on family as a result. And his uncle, Tommy Church, was the renowned mayor of Toronto, who served seven consecutive terms and was actually skewered in print by Ernest Hemingway before becoming a member of Parliament. The Toronto of Ted's youth was, as he said to me often, an Anglo-Saxon town where Queen Victoria's birthday was a mandatory celebration... His aunt was a member of the Imperial Order Daughters of the Empire, and the death of King George in 1936 brought bitter tears, and the abdication of Edward VIII to marry American divorcee Wallace Simpson was an event that loomed large in public consciousness. Everyone, Ted told me, was simply stunned that the monarchy could possibly get involved in a dirty thing like divorce. Those days, of course, are very, very long ago. One of the highlights of Ted's youth actually came on May 20, 1939, when Vernon managed to get his family into the press gallery over the speaker's chair, while King George VI granted royal assent to nine bills. I was ten feet away, Ted told me. It was electrifying. When World War II arrived, Toronto filled up with uniforms, and Ted was, as he often said, not in the war, but of the war as he was too young to enlist, but he recalled Churchill's growling radio broadcasts, rationing, and young men just slightly older than himself being killed in action overseas, and the obsession boys had with deciding which branch of the armed forces they wanted to join when their time came. Ted himself wanted the Navy. There was an abundance of work suddenly and Ted's lifelong worth ethic was forged as a delivery boy on Toronto streets and his first foray into the newspaper business came when he began selling Liberty Magazine and the Saturday Evening Post on the beaches of the Toronto Islands. Ted was in Toronto for VE Day, the conductor stopped streetcars and handed out beers, and he was working a hotel summer job in Atlantic City for VJ Day. He headed to Washington, D.C., where his father was working and got a job as a copy boy for the Washington Post, where he fell in love with journalism. After discovering that the Post required a degree to be a reporter, despite his having landed a front-page story with the careful coaching of Vernon, Ted headed back to Canada and got a job with the Ottawa Journal. There, he met Virginia Narn and promptly fell in love. When Ted got a job at the Timmins Free Press in Northern Ontario, he persuaded Ginger to join him and married her between the morning and evening editions in 1949. After a failed attempt at launching his own newspaper in Ansonville, Ted headed west. He became one of the top reporters at the Winnipeg Free Press, renowned for getting the story no matter what. He won the National Newspaper Award in 1957, got to know John G. Diefenbaker, and was soon a rising journalistic star. But fatefully, he fell in with Christians, converted to Christianity, and joined the St. John's Cathedral in the north end of Winnipeg, where he sang in the choir and recruited other men to join him. Cell groups formed to discuss Christianity and the works of C.S. Lewis, G.K. Chesterton, and Dorothy L. Sayers. It was Sayers' work on education that launched the Byfields on their next great adventure, the founding first of a weekend classical school and outdoor program based out of the cathedral, and then a boarding school for boys in Selkirk in 1958. For several years, the Byfields lived at the St. John's Cathedral's Boys School, where Ted taught history and helped oversee the famous outdoor program. This included epic treks across Canada along the old voyageur routes, where the boys packed on muscle, traversed brutal rapids rapids and worse portages, and still had enough breath to bellow semi-ancient canoeing songs. In 1964, after conquering the Methy Portage, Ted and his crews came across the massive hardened ruts on the path made generations before by the famous two-wheeled Red River carts. And, camping on the west shore of Lac La Loche, they met an old Métis man who remembered the men of the area leaving 79 years before to fight at Batoche with Louis Riel. Sitting beneath the stars, around a fire, the wide-eyed boys brushed the edge of history. Ted's second act as a public Christian returned him to journalism in 1973 when he launched a news magazine called the St. John's Edmonton Report out of the New Albertan branch of the boys' school. The magazine rapidly outgrew the schools and Ted went on his own, with a series of magazines across western Canada covering stories that the rest of the media ignored. The most well-known Alberta report channeled the discontent that rose during the years of the first Trudeau and the national energy policy, with Ted coining the phrase, The West wants in throwing in his lot with Preston Manning and the Reform Party and becoming the de facto voice of the movement that would eventually lead to Stephen Harper's 2011 majority government. Ted's magazines were the voice both of a region and a religion, even if there was occasional confusion as to which was which. While the Alberta Report and her sister publications were not explicitly Christian, Ted and his team simply covered the news as as if Christianity were true, as he put it. Ted reported on each new stage of the sexual revolution and laid out the agenda of the cultural revolutionaries in black and white while giving the counter-revolutionaries in the pro-life movement and parental rights movements their due. Christian education, as always, remained his passion, and Ted's magazines, which his son Link eventually took over, were staunch defenders of private education and stern opponents of anyone who infringed on the integrity of the family. Along the way, he lost a lot of money, despite the magazines having, at one point, a circulation of 60000 There were many reasons for this. Ted was constantly expanding, as, and, as he told me once, his inability to manage money was the great flaw of his career. Additionally, the Christian audience in Canada began to shrink, making it more difficult to serve a wide audience. Despite this, Ted said he never did anything for money. He did things because he thought they needed to be done and the money was incidental. Anyone who knew him knows that he meant this. After retiring from the management of the magazine, he launched two great book projects on his two great loves, A History of Alberta, which Jason Kenney lauded in his remembrance of Ted and his magnificent 12-volume History of Christianity. It was important, he said, to remind Christians of their own stories, and who better to tell those stories than journalists. Despite spending decades reporting on the decline of the country he loved and the loss of faith across the West, Ted Byfield remained almost relentlessly optimistic to the end. He often said that he felt things were about to change, that the battles that had been lost could still be won. His insistent faith on these points was unconvincing but infectious, and his tireless work ethic was a rebuke to all. I only knew him for a decade. Most of those at his funeral last year had been his friends for decades. But even the lion in winter was still a lion, as an old proverb goes, and it was a great privilege to know Ted Byfield and to call him my friend. As Ken White, a longtime friend and colleague of Ted's, put it, he was a great man and a true original, perhaps the only Canadian to sustain a politically important periodical outside Ontario and Quebec. And he did that while remaining an outspoken and unapologetic public Christian, one of the only ones Canada has ever had. We will not see his likes again. It was my privilege to tell his story, and it is now my privilege to talk to his son, Vincent Byfield, almost a year after his father passed away. All right, Vince, just to start off, it's now been almost exactly a year since your father, Ted Byfield, passed away. And in that time, we've worked together to, to bring out a biography of his life. And so I guess looking at, at the, the year that's passed, maybe just a few reflections on what what's life been like for starters living without your dad as you lived with him for, for the last decade and more of his life.
1: You know, Jonathan, that, that dad lived with us in the family house for the last 10 almost 11 years of his life and uh, we we moved from bc because we felt mom and dad needed somebody it was either that or long-term care and uh, we didn't want anything like that for our mom or dad So, so we we moved up and eventually bought the place but the the last this last year it is really remarkable much of a presence he still has in this house there are areas of the house that we still haven't fully cleared of his stuff and 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 it's largely with respect to to dad we just don't uh, it's mainly me i just don't want to have to face it you know it's when when mom passed away i didn't tear up at all and i i Tried to understand why that was. And I think it's because I'm if anybody was was destined for heaven, it was my mom. But but with dad, I well up a lot. Probably gonna well up during this interview. <laughs> but his presence is still very, very much here. Pretty much every, certainly every day, if not every hour of every day. Yeah, you know, on, on so many levels, there's still. Lots of memories of him all over the house.
0: He was such a, a big presence on the Canadian landscape for so long, and he was, in, and he lived, you know, like you know, into his his nineties. And so he got a chance to sort of see a lot of his predictions and his prophecies about both religious decline come true, about politics come true. And I always think that that prophets who who actually predict what's going to take place, but nobody wants to admit they're right, kind of get ignored. And I do think that your dad's contribution has been ignored outside a hardcore group of, of social conservatives like ourselves, but then also, of course, politicians who who recognize what his contribution was. So, you know, that would include people who actually took the time to offer their condolences on his passing, Garnet Janis, Stockwell Day, Jason Kenney, Preston Manning, who also wrote the foreword to this book. So for those who have been- living under a rock, or are just too young to have remembered those days, what was the significance of your dad's career?
1: One of the very first crusades, shall we say, for dad and the magazine was quality education in Alberta. And I think that's largely due to the fact that dad came and started three schools. And he felt very strongly uh, that, that we could be doing better, that there was a serious decline in quality happening all over the province and and that he he felt that the best way to solve it was through choice was the essentially the voucher education system and and so now here in Alberta far more than any other province we have a plethora of educational choices you can homeschool you can charter school you can have alternative educations in the public school system you have the catholic school system we have we have just so many options, and I think a large part of that is due to Dad's efforts, primarily through the magazine, all through, through through thirty years of of that. So that's one one area. I think when we look at Dad, when it comes to politics, the magazine has been credited with the the phrase "The West Wants In," which the Reform Party. And and that very much ca- encapsulates what what Dad's view. He wanted a fair deal for Alberta within a strong Canada. And, and he felt the best way for that was another term that I, I think he's often credited with is the, uh, the term the triple E Senate. Uh, the idea of having a Senate very similar to the United States, which was equal so that each pr- province had the same number. Uh, thereby dealing with regional problems as it would act as an effective veto in case their majority tyranny, like Quebec and Ontario, try to push things through to the other, effective and also elected, right? And so only, I think only one of those really applies right now, and that would be effective. The, The Senate actually has a lot of power that they hardly ever exercise. So that has not yet happened. And, I think it's fair to say that if we ever are going to see a sustainable Canada, that has to happen, or something like that has to happen. But that's the easiest one, and that's the model that the Americans have already established is a pretty good bulwark to to a majority tyranny. That's a prophecy that has yet to pass. But on, on the flip side of that, Dad, one of the very last comments he made, and this is because just in his last year, separatism was on the rise yet again in Alberta, but but it was reaching new heights. Some polls had it coming in almost at 50%. Certain, the average right now, I think still is in the neighborhood of 30 to 33% of Albertans are open to uh, sovereignty. And how you describe sovereignty will leave to another day. But but without a doubt separatism is is rising again and what dad's comment was and it was not so much to alberta as to the rest of canada was that should alberta ever actually succeed in separation that will be the end of canada that it will that alberta will act like a domino and you will see the rest of the provinces break away Right along, right shortly after, so so this is this is much more than most people realize, and so those are two prophecies of dads that have yet to be fulfilled, but they're they're flipped, so they're they're two sides of the the same coin, whether we stay together or not.
0: there's a kind of a an interesting symmetry to your dad's public career in that way because his heyday of course was opposing was opposing Pierre Trudeau and then he passed away during the premiership of the second Trudeau so with the first Trudeau you have this is the man more than anybody else who represented the sexual revolution in Canada. Married a flower child, decriminalized abortion, made divorce more easily, and then promptly took advantage of that himself. You know, alienated the West and gave rise to the first bout of separatism. And then on the other side, you have the second Trudeau, where you've got a lot of the same things taking place. You have issues like assisted suicide. In some ways, you see the sexual revolution being taken to its, its next and hopefully final phase under the sun. You see Western alienation rising once again. There's kind of a perverse symmetry into, into how that unfolded, the Canada between the, the two Trudeaus, as it were. And that kind of brings us to the, the political aspect, because I remember asking him if he ever met Trudeau. And he says, I never met Pierre Trudeau personally, but I was in a press scrum once where I asked him a question. And he's like, it was like we were people from two entirely different planets. And yet your dad was from Toronto. And in the first hours I spent interviewing him for the book, he talked about my Toronto, you know, growing up on the Toronto islands, doing all that kind of thing. How would you explain how this Toronto born fellow who said, and I quote, for me, Canada was Toronto, Montreal, and everything else was sort of Peggy's Cove, uh, turned into the voice of the West?
1: Well, I think the best analogy toward dad's awakening in terms of the political situation in what in Western Canada is like that of a reformed smoker. There is nobody worse to deal with if you if you are a smoker than a reformed smoker because they they often will put up with very little guff when it comes to getting you to stop and And Dad, I think is the same. Western Canadian people generally don't quite get the level of inequality but dad did because he grew up not only did he grow up in toronto but he grew up in basically covering the news covering politics early on in certainly winnipeg and and prior to that in por you know porcupine falls and all that but but he saw better than most and and the, i think you've seen that interview i think you've shown it where the one where he was being interviewed by jack webster and and the things he was saying in that, which was I believe in the early '80s, are almost identical to the sorts of things that we're hearing right now out of out of a lot of separatists, 40 years later, right? So so, but but Dad was again, I always have to put this caveat. He he understood the 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 Alberta and the Western Canada's frustrations, but he wanted Canada fixed. Not thrown away.
0: When he spoke at the opening convention of the Reform Party, he actually threw out threw out some French as well, much to the astonishment of a lot of the attendees. And when he was running the schools in in on the Red River there near Win or outside Winnipeg, they would they would actually do the Voyageur routes all the way into Quebec. Actually,
1: I know he had done some routes in Ontario, but no one, I think, has properly mapped all the roots and I wish somebody would someone would take the time to assemble them it's the sort of thing that an ex-master would be really good at doing and you know yellow for the for the for the Manitoba school red but and blue for the for the red for the Alberta school blue for the Ontario school sort of thing but uh, yeah it's, it's very possible that he did that that's before my time sort of right I was born in 65 and And dad was right in the heyday of all of that. I think 65 was one of the years that he went from Edmonton to Winnipeg.
0: So let's get into some of your earliest memories, because you were the youngest employee of the St. John's Edmonton Report, which later gave birth to a plethora of other magazines, the most famous of which is the Alberta Report. Although when I was growing up, I found all the my 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 grandfather, my opa, relied heavily on the B.C. Report, which I believe you were directly running at that time, actually. Um, I'm talking to you. I I now realize the magazine I picked up as a kid would have been the one managed by yourself. So what are your sort of earliest memories? Would they be of the school then in Manitoba or would they already be in Edmonton when you started working on the printing press?
1: Earliest memories I have are from St. John's, Manitoba, but they are they are very spotty. I remember there was a flood. The St. John's Cathedral Boys School was located on just off the banks of the Red River I was literally born on the property, so my birth certificate reads Lot Forty One, Parish of Saint Peter, Saint Andrews, Manitoba. So, and but um, and it was Dad that delivered me. I was it was a home birth. Dad was in many ways he 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 was a hippie. (laughs) But so I think it was probably sixty eight or sixty nine. There was a flood, and so the area in front of our house had turned into a big wading pool maybe sort of like a foot deep and and we were having a great old time just you know floating boats and having you know just that's that's my earliest actual memory um i've been told of other things when somebody who babysat us had a a pet pig and and so and apparently that pig was very fond of chasing me and so, so two. I, I was told that you know some Christmases I would be running around the house in terror as this pet pig would would be squealing and following me. I, I I don't think that probably thought it was all play for the pig. I don't know, but those are that's not a memory I actually have though. But one that one one that I've been told many times is we were living in the staff house. So so the, the original rectory, the stone building still is on the property. It's now been declared a heritage site because it was built in 1840, I believe. So it's almost 200 years ago. And the staff house beside it is now gone, but we were living on the third floor of it and it had a fire escape. And apparently I We don't know who did it, but someone left the door to the fire escape open. And I was crawling. I was at a crawling stage and someone walking by saw me at the ground level. And she looked up and she saw about three steps down from the top of the third floor a piece of my sweater torn. So it looks like I fell three stories. And I landed in an eight inch patch of grass about that big and on both sides were massive concrete blocks so if i had gone a few inches either way i i wouldn't be here today right so so there was a there was a lot of small miracles or not so small miracles going on but that that i don't have a memory of apparently they they there was no ambulance so they called a cab cab called it in and selkirk which is the nearest town couldn't didn't know what to do with me So they said, send them to Vancouver General. Dad knew the mayor of Winnipeg. So the next thing, apparently, I had four motorcycle cops, two in front, two in back, with the taxi in the middle. And they were rigging all the lights through downtown Winnipeg so that they could get us through to Vancouver General. And uh, upon arrival, all they could find wrong with me was a scratch on my cheek, uh, so the scrambled brains have yet to be discovered.
0: <laughs> so what about your first memories with So the magazine gets founded the first magazine and what will become a series of of, of politically transformative magazines in one thousand nine hundred and seventy three and there 's a picture in Prairie Lion of you as a child hoisting a giant stack of papers. What are your sort of memories from those, the, from, from those heydays? Because interestingly, I have interviewed a lot of people, a lot older than you, and you have some of the most <laughs> interesting memories, even though you were still a boy, because your memories are from a totally different perspective.
1: Uh, what I was hauling there are what are called signatures. And the machine in the back is a, is a stitcher, a folder and a stitcher. So what it would do is there would typically be 16 pages of a magazine, and you'd place them in one. And then you'd place another 16 and another, usually we were a 48 page magazine. So we'd have three signatures of 16 and then they would just drop down on a conveyor belt and one on top of the other and then get stapled That's stitching and then trimmed. And that would be your magazine. Yeah. And in that shot, I'm going to say, so that would be 75 or so. So I was 10. Yeah. I was, I knew how to run the folder. I knew how to run the stitcher. I knew how to run the cutter. I knew how to run the small presses I knew how to run. I I was doing darkroom photography, lithography, uh, and composing, and uh, just uh, all over the place. And I my my perspective was not so much on the news beat until later when I became a copy boy around age twelve. But one of of production and and so you you uh, you know people are colorful all over the place. Pressmen are colorful. Uh, the 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 lithography guys were a little bit odd, always have been. I think it's all the fumes. I think that has an effect on them over time because there's a, but yeah, the photography and the darkroom boys were often a, it's a very interesting time and and more fun things. Like sometimes I tag along with a photographer, Bill McEwen actually took a shot. He was the, one of the magazine photographers and he, had, he was going to take a picture of this girl, which was sort of like the girl for Klondike days for that year. And I asked if I could tag along. And he said, sure. So he t- did a shot with me. The girl was Dorothy Stratton. And so if, you'll, if you know later on, there's a movie starring Marielle Hemingway, Star 80, about the murder of Dorothy Stratton. And she went to Hollywood and things like that. So there was some very interesting, very interesting childhood. Now, I'm not even talking yet about the fact that we all lived in this commune, this three-story walk-up on 149th Street and and frequently the 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 parents would all be working really long hours and and so we would be left especially in the summertime to our, our own devices sometimes we'd have some hippie to babysit us i remember learning how to make weed salad salad out of you know dandelions and things like that it was awful the company had a one ton truck and so Robbie Tompkinson, the production manager, would drive it like a commuter truck often, and so he'd drive to the plant, which was about three miles away and We wanted to build ports, and we knew that whenever they printed the paper, it would be printed on it was sheet fed presses, so they had these pallets, and so we we would draw, we would all bicycle up and they'd throw out all the pallets on the outside of the building, so we'd open up the one ton truck doors on the back, fill it to the top with with wooden pallets, and then close it up, and then wait for Robbie Tompkinson to drive home that night, and then empty it. And they were wondering how we were getting all this wood, right? So, so, but we eventually built a fort that was three stories high, and, and then the then the local fire department showed up and told us we had to knock off the top floor because it violated some sort of city bylaws. <laughs>
0: So explain to the listeners what this this commune is, because one of the, the one of the things that people don't understand is that when you're talking about your dad's different ventures, right, he founded these boarding schools with an Anglican order called the Company of the Cross, where everybody gets paid like a dollar a day to run this boarding school, which eventually turned into into three boarding schools, one in Ontario, one in Edmonton, one one near Selkirk, Manitoba. And then from the Edmonton School launches the St. John's Edmonton Report, which later turns right. into the Alberta Report. But initially, the magazine was also run out of the Company of the Cross before that relationship became untenable. But for a short period there...
1: Not that short. It was about six years. It'd be 73. We, we set up in 1973. We moved to the city in 74. We had that three-story walk-up, Oh, which Dad bought for a dollar. Like an entire apartment complex for one dollar. You're going to have to tell that story. I don't know how he pulled it off, but Dad had a lot of very clever men supporting him, both for the schools and for the magazine. And this must have been some sort of tax write-off or something. But anyway, they they had arranged for Dad to purchase. It was a Waverly Place, ninety forty one forty nine Street in Edmonton, a three story walk up, roughly. 24 apartments at the time of signing all dad had to do was produce one dollar and the building would be transferred to to the company of the cross which was the name of the organization and dad showed up and he didn't even have a dollar <laughs> and so, so i think it was keith dudman or someone who, who said oh i can't believe this byfield <laughs> so he comes, starts coughing up his own dollar dad didn't even pay the dollar <laughs> so yeah. but, uh, I, I don't, you know, the 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 gentlemen who orchestrated all of that. I'm afraid are all gone with dad now. You're going to have to get that story from the other side.
0: And so, what was it like? Or oh, the, this the six year period where you've got you're running this magazine that eventually turns into a sort of conservative media empire spanning most of Western Canada. But the origins of it, which it was it was almost impossible to figure out what to put in the book and what not because. It seems like, you know, you produced as many insane insider stories as you did stories in the in the the actual magazine of the characters that were hired, like the guy who took the newspaper or the magazine truck through an A&W and then left with the entire overhang because he had forgotten he was driving a huge truck or like the guy who, who, you know, smuggled vodka around in his case, fell asleep. During a movie review, woke up, you know, everybody with a snoring, and and then got fired because the the company complained.
1: I don't think it was a movie. I think it was a the Citadel Theater, uh, and uh, yeah, it was Gordon Dewar. He was a, a chronic alcoholic, and yes, he was snoring through the performance so loudly that they had to kick him out. Yeah,
0: what was that period life living in a in a in a media commune to launch a conservative business empire?
1: In many ways, it was just a very much an odd duck environment. Yeah. Each morning there would be prayers. I think you've got a shot of that in, in the book. The chapel also acted as the pantry for everybody, right? Because on a dollar a day, you can't feed yourself. Right. So, so everybody would, the, the company would gather and, and assemble food. And so, so yeah, it was, it was a strange world really. Um there was there was constantly fights over access to the vehicles dad had assembled it yeah, with communism but 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 at but at the same time we had all the we wanted or people there wanted this quote unquote trappings of modern life like like having access to wheels right uh so so yes there was frequent arguments over, over who got to have the vehicle when and things like that and there were oddball characters. I, I, I just, I cannot emphasize enough some of the strange people that came through that program.
0: Wasn't there one named Wild Bill?
1: Oh yeah. Okay, so Wild Bill Cochran. He sort of followed Dad. He, he came from Manitoba, where Dad says that he would go into a bar in, in Selkirk and and just pick a fight with a cop, just because he had nothing else better to do and he he developed a reputation for the cops didn't like they would they would throw him in jail and everything but but they just didn't want to be the first to respond because <laughs> that would be the one who who would take it the hardest right and i don't know if his reputation preceded him or not but he he wound up coming to edmonton and there was one time so this is more of my mischief so this is but so he was babysitting at the house and we were at the front of the house 149 streets a sort of a secondary artery you know four lane street and uh, it was winter we had developed we had created this little wall of snow and we were thought thought we were very clever we would see the headlights of the cars coming and we would throw snowballs at the cars and it was only a matter of time before one of those cars was a police car, and so we I remember the the snowballs were in mid flight we already and then we recognized the target and because you could only see the headlights it was dark right so so and there was a tree obfuscating the vehicle coming and so we already knew we were in trouble while the snowballs were in mid flight and there was four of us and so I darted Stephen Lambert who was a Newfie kid he darted north and then my little brother Thomas and and Dicky they ran into the apartment where we live, which was where we were, we were doing all this in front of where we live. So I I went about two blocks south, went back through the back alley, went back to the house, and then we were on the second floor. So I climbed up onto the balcony, went inside and then hid under the couch. And while Bill, the whole time was just watching a TV show. And I remember him peering under the couch and he said, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. He went okay, so then he just kept watching his show. And then there was a knock on the door, and there were the police with Thomas and Dickie and, and the policeman was trying to explain what was going on. Now you got to remember what you don't know is Wild Bill Cochran is a Native Indian, and and so is my little brother, and so so the policeman didn't realize. Nor would it matter really that I was Caucasian. But anyway, he was, it was very hard for the policeman to talk because my little brother was screaming at the top of his lungs Vincent was in it too. Vincent was in it too. Vincent was in it too. <laughs> and it's evidently other people were involved, said the cop. <laughs> and so he handed that. So they gave him a warning and that was about it. But yeah, we have a lot of stories like that. But while Bill Cochran, he was so strong that he was able to pull fence posts out with his bare hands when when it came to you know taking out fence posts so that was his that was his claim to fame
0: what was it like working with your dad because i understand to a degree he'd mellowed out before you were helping to, to to run the show in the early days there were stories of him smashing you know a phone through a wall in anger flinging coffee cups across the room pulling the sink off the wall what was it like to work with him when you joined the family business
1: the reality is when you have a dad who who gets up around four o'clock in the morning, goes to work and goes to co- comes home around nine o'clock at night and goes to bed is you, you don't really have a dad. Right? so, so I found a few ways to do, to actually connect with my dad chiefly working for him, which is not the same as a mom, you know, like a father, son relationship. It's more like a employee employer relationship, but, but that's the, you know, that's the way it is. And, and essentially it was a, uh, a hybrid of a family business in that sense the other way i got to know him was he liked to walk as you know as you put in the books he was essentially addicted to walking and he would go for long stretches and i would volunteer to accompany him and that was practically the only time i really got long term time with my dad early on and i love those times but but in the office as you say like his first At 11224 142nd Street, which was the first plant in Edmonton that we had, Dad's office was on the main floor. I was never there for any of the incidences of rage, but I can attest to the holes in the wall. Like I would go in there and I'm why is there another hole in the wall here, Dad? No response. (laughs) He swore to other people later that, the, these ra- these incidences of anger were all calculated, but I, I I have my doubts. I can't really say much further, but other than I can attest that the holes were in the walls, and there was more than one.
0: If you could just again, you lived with him for the for the last of the last ten eleven years of his life. After working with him for many years, was sort of a break in between. What are a couple of your favorite stories about your dad? Not that you heard from others, but favorite stories of your own. The legends I've all heard to the to the point that I'd hear the same legend from four different people, all slightly all slightly accentuated with slightly different details. So there are some stories in the in, in sort of the byfield repertoire that have gathered the gathered layers with the telling and the retelling. Again, my guess,
1: one of my first and most favorite moments, and it it, it all it, it often involves. Transporting from one location to another, usually just your person. Dad would, in the wintertime, not just walk. He would snowshoe from Devon, which is a town southwest of Edmonton, maybe 15, 20 kilometers, to the apartment. And and we would snowshoe that. Normally, he did it with masters, and uh, meaning other people, uh, other adults. But I wanted to come. And uh, so so he agreed. But he didn't think I would make it. So he had arranged for mom to be at about a halfway point to pick me up. And and I went anyway, all the whole distance. And I was very, very pleased with myself with that. And although I didn't really get a lot of time with dad on that, because there were others on that run, Alita Shadle, Joe Slay, the Kellys, things like that. But after that, later in life, it became normal for me to go on these walks with Dad and and that was really when i got to know a side of my dad that that i i never saw anywhere else so those almost all of those walks i will i i remember well and cherish so there's that i think the other part again it's involving walking but dad because he was such a workaholic and because as a result he had created this relationship gap with the with his own children in a large way. he realized that in his later years and so when he had the when the when he had the the sailing boat, he decided that he needed to make amends to that degree and, and so he started to fly the various grandchildren to Vancouver and he would go sailing around the Wanda Fuca Strait, Gulf. And, and often, not often, always, we would go to Salt Spring Island and we would walk to the top of Mount Tuam, which is not much of a mountain. But still, it was a good walk for the day. And then we come back down. And so I have very fond memories of that, not only with dad, but also with, with the nephews and the nieces. So I guess the only one is, so as usual, I was often angry with dad. And and one time I wrote it out. And I it was just a I don't think the letter still exists. It might be down in the stuff in the basement that that you didn't have a chance to go through. But I had written this letter to dad and I was quite angry with him. And, and I said a lot of things that were very hurt. I thought very hurtful to him. And then that night I went to go. I was I was in high school. I went to work at the composing room that night on a Friday night. And there, I dad's office, this was now at 11648, the next plant, dad's office was within earshot of where I was working. And I could hear him talking to other people. He had like an ad hoc editorial meeting going on. And he was laughing. And then he'd read some more. And then he'd laugh. And I realized he was reading out my letter to him, to the rest of the editorial team. And I, I was, at first, there were a whole bunch of emotions came down and one it was first I was angry that he how dare he share something so personal but then a a pride started to kick in because he wouldn't read it if he thought it was crap (laughs) so so anyway that was that that moment I hope that I think that's that pretty much covers it in, in terms of the early times
0: well Vince thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this so soon as well
1: you successfully didn't get me to tear up which is which is a small miracle because usually i do when so so i'm guessing things are healing you know it's taken a year but yeah i sure miss the guy
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Vincent Byfield about his father, the great conservative pioneer, Ted Byfield. Those of you who want to order a hardcover copy of Prairie Lion can go to thechristians.com slash prairielion and order one from Vincent at the Society for Exploring and Recording Christian History. If you'd like to order a softcover, you can go to amazon.ca or amazon.com. Just look for Prairie Lion, the life and times of Ted Byfield. Once again, this is The Van Maren Show. We really appreciate you listening to this podcast. If you want to listen to other episodes, head over to lifesightnews.com, Click on the podcast tab. You can find all of our shows there. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.